0: Trust me, it'll be fine. I never say that to you? Trust me, it'll be fine. This is code for it. It's a disaster. (laughs) Right? At least you feel that way sometimes, don't you? Every time a used car salesman says, it's going to be fine, you're like, sure it is. Or a financial advisor, trust me, I got this. Can you imagine what happened in all the financial offices across North America when we had the big crash? It's going to be fine. Trust me. Politicians, we got this. We're good. Your boss don't worry. I know it seems like it's a crazy initiative we're launching. Trust me. It'll be fine. Or preachers me. It'll be fine. We don't trust anyone. Why is that? Well, partly it's because we've been burned. Show me your hand. Let's be bold here. You have been burned by somebody you trusted and then they betrayed that trust? Like everybody in the room. It's bad enough when that betrayal happens, but then... The attempted comeback afterwards is almost worse than the betrayal itself. How hard is it to come back after somebody betrays your trust? We don't trust anybody because we've been burned. But there's another reason that I think is a little more insidious, that lies at the root of why we don't trust anyone. I think buried deep within each of our hearts, we have this sense that if we were God, everything would be a little bit better. Can you identify, like, if I was in charge, we'd be good. Ultimately, we trust ourselves more than anyone else. And that can lead to idolatry, because you think you'd be a better God than God. The very real consequence of this, of not trusting anybody, is that ultimately, at some level, many of us don't really trust God. Can you identify? Like if you were really brutally honest, you'd say there are times when I find it difficult to trust the Lord. I'll admit that this is a regular occurrence for me. I mean, this would happen to me probably six times a month. Where I'd find myself in a situation where it's just so difficult that my first instinct is panic. Anytime you have panic as a first instinct, it betrays a lack of trust in the divine life. Because if you trusted that God is good, if you trusted that He is loving, if you trusted that He was in control, well, you probably wouldn't panic. Am I right? Much of the time, many of us are only most of the way in when it comes to this whole Jesus thing. Remember the Princess Bride? This one is only mostly dead. <laughs> it's true of many Christians. These ones are only mostly alive. Am I right? I know it's true for me. This one is only mostly. in. This is um, kind of a problem uh, because uh, hashtag Mark 8, um, in those days... When again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with uh, bread here in this desolate place? (laughs) Do you just laugh at these cats? Like, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. You tend to think, "I, I wouldn't be like them. But then you think about the six times a month when you were exactly like them. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. (laughs) You ever been exasperated? It's okay, you're biblical. right? Even your master, the founder of your movement, got exasperated once in a while. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "'Why does this generation seek a sign?' "'Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation.' And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them. Isn't it very bready? It's very bready. They had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, "'Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod.' And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread." They're just fools, these guys. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, "'Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread?' Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, um, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, um, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? For what can a man or a woman give in return for their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him or her, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. But do you enjoy these chapters as much as I do? Somebody say amen, yes? So good. I hope you're reading ahead. I see posts from some of you online as you Work your way through the text in advance of Sunday. Here today in Mark chapter 8, we find um, seven things about trusting God that will change your life. That's what you're looking for. Seven things about trusting God that will change your life. So I'm going to do my best um, used car salesman thing to see if I can get you to buy in all the way on Jesus. Starting with point one. Trust Jesus and watch the miraculous become routine. Y'all heard me? Trust him and watch the miraculous become routine. This is what happens in verses 1 through 9. Again, he feeds a vast multitude. Last time it was 5,000. This time it is the feeding of the 4,000. Listen to verse 1 and see a clue as to the routineness of this. In those days, here it is, when again a great crowd had gathered. He teaches the crowd, this time it's for three days. They're hungry, they haven't eaten anything. He's like, I feel bad for these people. I have compassion on them. We need to feed them. The disciples are like, we got no bread. So Jesus takes over. Performs a mighty miracle. And feeds these 4,000 plus. When again, a great crowd had gathered. Jesus always draws a crowd. I just want to point that out. Let that sit in our hearts for a second as we think about this church, as we think about the work we're doing together. It's Jesus who draws a crowd. Jesus always draws a crowd. And the word for great crowd here is beautiful. It means every many. Every many. So it's not just lots of people, but it's lots of varieties of people. He always draws a crowd of every many people. And he's been doing this for a very long time. Even in the original context in Mark, this is what's been happening. Every time Jesus goes anywhere, he's surrounded by throngs of people. For us, 2,000 years later, we have the ability, the benefit of preaching about Jesus, knowing that around Jesus has gathered a movement that now numbers in the countless billions of people. Billions of people throughout history have devoted their lives to Jesus. Jesus always draws a crowd. What's fun here is that he's up to his usual tricks, drawing a crowd, preaching and teaching, and meeting their needs. But this time he's doing it north of Galilee. Last time he fed the 5,000, it was just right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This time he's up to the northeast. He's in Gentile country this time. He has gone somewhere unexpected. There are lots of Gentiles in this crowd, And so here we see that Jesus' message of good news is spreading beyond the Jews now to the rest of the people in that region, which is why the word every many for a great many crowd has such beautiful resonance. You want a reason to trust Jesus? Trust Jesus because he's super inclusive and he has been this way for a very long time now. Let that image be seared in your mind of Jesus taking his ministry north now into Gentile country. And let that remind you as you interact with people of every stripe that Jesus has always been inclusive. This is part of what He does. If you were going to put a slogan to it, you'd say, Jesus, the Savior, reaching out to the unreachable since B.C. 6. Right? This is what He does. Why do people still flock to Jesus? Because, in the words of verse 2, He has compassion. I am being compassionated on the crowd. Find Jesus, find compassion. And the last time I checked, life is a lot nicer with some compassion in it. Quick point here, I'm not necessarily preaching this, but if we're looking to have Jesus' life transform ours, if Jesus is compassionate, we should be compassionate. Correct? Correct. And why do you think Jesus would want a whole bunch of people who call themselves his followers, who are learning to live like he lived, to do like he did. Because he knows that his people are living in a lost and fallen world. And so the more compassion, the better, which is why he models it. I am being compassionated on the crowd. This is why I believe the miraculous is routine for Jesus, because Jesus routinely loves. If you want to see the miracle of compassionate love take root in your life, keep coming to Jesus And trust him, even if it takes faith. And this is, of course, what the Pharisees lack. They show up in verses 10 through 12, and what are they demanding? A sign, not from Jesus, but directly from heaven. The particular resonance of this is lost a little bit in the English translation. But in the original here, they're literally asking for a sign from heaven. They are not taking Jesus' word at face value. They are not taking his mighty works at face value. It's not enough for them. They want a sign from heaven. They want direct divine intervention. Seeking from him a sign from heaven, verse 11, to test him. In the original language here, to tempt him. If you ever find yourself acting like a Pharisee and feeling like you want to demand a sign from God, May I remind you as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you that I don't think any of us are in any position to test God at any time. Point number two, trust Jesus even when you don't get all the proof you need. How difficult is that? I feel the pain of that, like in my own life. Trust Jesus even when you don't get all the proof you need. Look, the kind of healthy skepticism that demands a sign from heaven isn't healthy at all. It's sick unbelief. So what, you're asking us to have blind faith? Um, Au contraire. Faith is the cure for blindness. This is what happens in verses 13 through 21. Take a look. And he left them and got into the boat again and went... To the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hard? Do you have eyes but you don't see? Do you have ears but you don't hear? And do you not yet remember? Um, yeah, touche, My bad. Friends, we are experts at missing the point. This began back in the garden when Adam and Eve decided that they ought to be God's peers when all along they were meant to be his friends. This is the central tension, yes, when the serpent tempts them. He says, look, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be equal to God, knowing good and evil. They're like, that'd be pretty fun to be God's peer. Let's be honest. Wouldn't it be fun to be God's peer? You ever meet somebody really impressive? They're really good at something? You're like, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. Okay, This is true for me as a preacher's son. Listening to my grandfathers preach and to my father preach. Listening to some of my father's friends preach. They would come through our churches and I would sit there just awestruck. Listening to these people just proclaim the glories of God from the pulpit. And so yes, that had an effect on me. When I grew up, I wanted to be like them. This is healthy and normal, but it can quickly get twisted right? as we turn to idol worship and in the worst case scenario, decide to put ourselves upon the throne. We're experts in missing the point. This is the leaven of the Pharisees. This is the leaven of Herod, self-centered, self-reliance. So anytime you spot self-centered, self-reliance showing up in your life, you need to root it out. Think of Passover in the Jewish tradition. When it comes to Passover, they would root out any leaven from their houses. Kids would go through the house. It's kind of a fun thing. You get to tear the house apart looking for the hidden leaven. And if your mom was kind, she would hide a little piece of leaven. It was like usually a lump of bread. They'd hide it somewhere in the house. And if you found the leaven, you get a prize. Okay, before Passover, we root out all the leaven from our house. So the next time, which will be this week, that self-reliance shows up in your life, Rooted out because Jesus Himself says to beware of this kind of thing. Here's the point from this: neither religious nor worldly power are the answer you're looking for. Jesus is. So point number three: trust Jesus and fix your perception, understanding, hard heartedness, blind eyeness, deaf earness, forgetfulness problems. Don't miss that. That's what happens as you trust Jesus. I know it's difficult to trust him because it seems scary at first, but it's in trusting Jesus that all these other problems you have with idolatry, all these other problems you have with self-reliance begin to die away. And what's interesting is they typically don't begin to die away until you take the leap of faith to trust in Jesus. Don't you want to hedge your bets? You're like, can I get a little payoff before I go all in? Is there anything in life that works that way? Why do we expect that faith should work that way? And don't kid yourself, thinking that you don't have problems with perception, understanding, hard-heartedness, blind-ness, deaf-earness, forgetfulness. It's probably why Jesus is constantly healing people with those physical problems after pointing out their spiritual corollaries. It's exactly what happens in verses twenty-two through twenty-six. They came to Bethsaida. What happens here? They bring him a blind man and they beg for him to heal him. And it's very interesting how he does it. He takes him outside of the town, spits on his eyes. You good? And he's like, nah, I can see men, but they look like trees. What's funny is we've been to Bethsaida and Bethsaida, even to this day, the ruins of Bethsaida are in a forest. It's a very treed part of northern Galilee. And when you sit, like literally, if you were at the gates of Bethsaida, which are there to this day, you sit at the gates. I sat with my dad there a couple years ago, literally in the seat where the old men of the town would sit. It was, it was awesome. As you sit there, right in front of your eyes are these massive waving trees. And I was dumbstruck for a second because I was thinking about the blind man from Bethsaida. And those are probably the great, 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 great grandson trees of the trees that this fool saw. He's like, I see men, but they look like trees. So Jesus is like, all right, let me have another go. And he lays hands on him and then he receives his healing. Okay? I want you to notice. How Jesus heals. In Mark 1, he heals the demon-possessed man and a fever-stricken mother-in-law, many who are sick with diseases and those possessed by demons, and a leper. In Mark 2, he heals the paralytic. Remember, the one who was let down by the four homies. In Mark 3, he heals the man with the withered hand and anyone in the crowd who touched him. I like that part very much. Anyone in the crowd who touched him and every demon that even came near him had to flee. In Mark 4, he doesn't heal anybody. He's taking a break, but instead he calms a storm. In Mark 5, he heals the Gadarene demoniac, the woman with the issue of blood, and even Jairus' daughter, whom he raises from the dead. In Mark 6, he can only heal a few people in Nazareth, because his family are a bunch of idiots. And then his disciples get get in on the act. He feeds the 5,000. He takes a stroll on the water... And he stops the north wind. In Mark 7, he heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf mute. And here in Mark 8, he heals the Bethsaida blind man. But he heals him in two parts. Isn't that so weird? He spits in his eyes. When Jesus meets you, it's a touch. Sometimes when he meets you, it's his word. Sometimes when he meets you, it's because you touch him. Sometimes it's just his presence that makes the darkness flee. Sometimes he works on you a bit. That can preach good. Finally, in point number four. Point number four trust Jesus even though the payoff might be a bit of a process. Somebody shout, right? The payoff is a process. Put that on a t shirt. Okay? Trust Him even though the payoff might be a bit of a process. Look, Todd, I want to believe that. I just don't know if I can. If you want to trust Jesus, you're going to need to decide who He is. This is what's held in tension in verses 27 through 30. And I've been hinting about this throughout the entire series so far, haven't I? I'm going to say, you wait till Mark 8 when Jesus turned to His disciples and He says, but who do you say that I am? am this is a super crucial moment i would dare say your entire life hinges on how you answer this question but who do you say that i am here's the question for you today grace when it comes to jesus as far as you're concerned is he a good man or is he the god man period right is he who the bible says he is Is he God the Son made flesh? Did he really go to a cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins? Did he really rise again the third day to triumph in his body over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever? Is it true? Did he really ascend back to his Father's right hand? Is he really sitting there right now interceding for you? Is he really going to come again in glory someday to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end? Friend, is it true or is it a fairy tale? If it's a fairy tale, I'm quitting tomorrow and becoming a Buddhist. But if it's true then every sacrifice you've ever made, every leap of faith you've ever taken is worth it and will be worth it. Who is Jesus? Friend, is he your savior today? Could you say unequivocally without reservation like Peter does, you are the Christ. That's the kind of devotion, that's the kind of... I want to say madness, but it's not madness, but it's like a a divine madness, small m, that kind of thing that springs from you even though it doesn't make any sense. You're the Christ. You're the Savior. Okay, You look at your troubled bank balance and you say, you're the Christ. You look at your dysfunctional family and you say, you're the Christ. You look at your breaking body and you say, you're the Christ. Point number five. Trust Jesus because He is the Christ. He is the Savior you've been looking for. And look, just in case you're tempted to get it twisted, you'll never meet anyone who doesn't need a Savior. Most of the time, they'll just be too busy trying to save themselves to trust Jesus. Hear me. Um, I don't need a Savior. <laughs> right. Don't even have that argument. Say, come back to me in six months. Come back to me the next time your life falls up. Don't even have that conversation. Everybody needs a savior. They're just busy saving themselves. So busy, in fact, that they have no time to trust Jesus. Make sure you don't adopt their worldly mindset like Peter in verses 31 through 33. Jesus starts telling them, Look, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, but on the third day I'm gonna rise again. Peter's not having it. Takes him aside, he's like, what's with all this death and dying stuff? Can't we just kill the Romans instead? This is what the Jews thought the Messiah was going to do. Come back and liberate them from the yoke of the Romans. You think Jesus would just correct him gently, but no. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, I love you. I want you to think hard about this. Are you possessed of a worldly or a heavenly mindset? And y'all know how hard it is to change your mindset. We have the mindset book at home a whole book that sold a million copies to teach people how to change their mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. I'm like, could somebody please write the book on how to change your mindset from a worldly mindset to a heavenly one? Because that one will really make a difference. How hard is it? We can't even do push-ups every morning. Some of you can. You're very impressive. I'm very impressed with you. But man, ask me to change my mindset. I am guilty. I say guilty. At least six times a month, if not more. I find myself trapped in a worldly mindset when the goal is to have a heavenly one. Point number six. Worship team, you can come join me. Trust Jesus and learn a completely new way of seeing the world. Um, This one and the last one coming up here in a second are really going to mess with you if you receive it. Here's the point. This is why shifting your mindset from a worldly one to a heavenly one is so difficult. If you have a heavenly mindset, it will ruin your life. There, I said it. It will ruin your life in this world if you have a heavenly mindset. You won't be able to like go for broke to earn as much money as you can because you realize that money is just a construct and a tool to be used for God's glory. Right? You won't ever be able to hold a grudge anymore because you realize that Jesus has forgiven you of your sin and you are required, commanded in fact, to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. So you'll never be able to be bitter again. You'll never be able to be selfish. Because the second you act selfishly, you'll be like, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had caused a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Okay, I guess that selfishness has to die too. Remember the rich young ruler in Mark 10? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I shall love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept since my youth, he says. He's very impressive. He does 100 push-ups every morning. He's got mad money in the bank. Jesus says, one more thing remains. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad, for he was very wealthy. That's go for the jugular Jesus right there. And here he is on display again in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38. And he said this plainly. If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. but whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? You want to follow me, says Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross, also known as die, and follow me. Remember three weeks ago when I talked about come and die? It's haunting me. I've had like 17 times since then where I've had to stop what I was doing and die instead. I hope the same is true for you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and let them be following me, present continuous in the Greek. Much harder than saying, yes, I follow Jesus. No, 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 no. Let them be following me. Um, It's going to be pretty hard to run my life as usual if I do that. Verse 35, for whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the paradox at the heart of Jesus' universal call to discipleship, which is what the Gospel of Mark is all about. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to live, you have to die. Point number seven trust Jesus. If you want to live, trust him and watch the miraculous become routine. Trust him. Even when you don't get the proof you need, trust him and find your heart softening, your eyes opening, your ears hearing for the very first time. Trust him. Even though the payoff might be a process, trust him because he is the savior you've been looking for. Trust him and learn a completely new way of seeing the world. Trust him. If you want to live and above all, remember, this is Jesus we're talking about here. So trust me. It's going to be fine.